0: great song. Thank you, Mark. i ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. As I began to think about uh, this message about managing your fears, it became very clear that the greatest fear we have is the fear of dying. I will never forget the uh, Friday before my dad died on Sunday. I made a bad decision that day. There were some things that my dad and I needed to say and needed to talk about. But I put needing to preach above being with my dad, not knowing that he would die before we could have that talk. And so I rushed back here thinking that I would preach on Sunday and go back on Monday, only to get a phone call at 11 o'clock on Saturday saying, your dad's going down, you need to get back, and driving about 95 miles an hour to Pascagoula to try to get back and to try to communicate with him, but by that time, he was unable to communicate. But I do remember the last conversation we had. I went out to talk to the doctor, and of course, as as in anything, a doctor can only tell you what they, what they know. They cannot predict the future. And I went out and talked to his family doctor, and I said, uh, do you think it's okay if I go back? He said, well, to be honest with you, your dad's probably not going to make it out of the hospital. But he said, I don't think he's going to die any time in the next few days. I said, could I leave for a couple of days and go back? I've got some things I need to do. He said, yeah, I think you could. And my dad was a smart man, and he knew I was out in the hallway. And so when I came back in, he said, "Uh, what was that all about? I said, well, just some things that, you know, we need to discuss. And he said... "Uh, what did the doctor say? And I said, "Well, he said it's 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 not good, Dad. It, you know, we need to we need to talk about some things." And and I'll never forget. Before we prayed and before I left, he said, "I want you to understand something. I'm not afraid to die." He said, "I know where I'm going to go when I die." Now, I tell you, I've been in places where I wasn't the case. People have held on because there was this gripping fear around them that said, God, if I die, what'll happen to me? And I watched families hold on to loved ones because they were afraid to let go of their loved ones and release them to death. And I and I realized that death is a bondage over us. It has a fear that has gripped us. And it takes us over and it controls us and it manipulates us. We read the paper. And some of you, the first page you turn to is the obituaries. If you're not in it, you feel like you can get up and get a cup of coffee. I mean, we're obsessed with it in our society. You judge a film now by how many people have been killed in it. We are a society consumed with the topic of death, and yet we don't want to talk about it. So tonight I want us to talk about it. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless. That's important. Powerless. Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I'm interested in seeing this new movie that's coming out on Memorial Day, Pearl Harbor. Right after Pearl Harbor, Franklin Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Truth of the matter is, there's a whole lot more that we fear. Some of us fear crowds, some of us fear flying, some of us fear riding with people who are driving, some of us fear heights. Some of us are claustrophobic. Some of us are afraid of light. Some of us are afraid of darkness. There are all kinds of fears that we deal with, and, and fear is one of those things that has gripped us. And I think Satan has gotten a hold of even God's people in being afraid of things that God never wanted us to be afraid of, that God wanted us to walk in victory over. This church was afraid that with one word of the emperor, they would be executed. And so the fear of death, the fear of punishment, the fear of persecution was weighing down on them. And so the first thing I want us to look at tonight is I need somebody to give me strength over the fear of death. Now let's talk about three things here. First of all, the reality of fear. The Greek word is phobos, from which we get our word phobia. And there are thousands and thousands of phobias out there. But it comes actually from the Iliad where the god Phobos would strike fear into the heart of Homer, the hero. And so it is a word that says, uh, it, it implies panic, that we panic, that we get stressed out about something. Webster defines fear as anxiety caused by the presence or nearness of danger, evil, or pain. Webster divines bondage as that which disturbs the mind and keeps it in a state of painful uneasiness. That's the reality of fear. Let's talk about the reality of death. And the scripture speaks of three kinds of death. First of all, there is physical death. Physical death. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews 9 and verse 27. Hebrews 9 and verse 27. By the way, if you thought about this, if you ever wondered how much money uh, Bill Gates will leave when he dies, all of it, every penny. Just a thought. Hebrews nine twenty seven. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Life is one hundred percent fatal. Every one of us in this room, unless the Lord comes back, will die. It's an inevitable reality of life. When you were born, you were born to die. Man dies physically. The mortality rate is 100% since Adam sinned and Eve sinned. In that day, it said, when you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. There are two dates that you and I have no control over. The day we were born... And the day we die. Physical death is a reality. We have to deal with it. We go to funerals. We don't know what to say to people. We don't know how to minister to them. And one thing I would encourage you to do when you're at a funeral, don't talk too much. Just be there because it's not your words as much as it is your presence that is a comfort. And so we deal with physical death. Secondly, spiritual death. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians Chapter 2, Ephesians 2 and verse 1. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. A very familiar verse, but you need to see it and think now. There's physical death, but then there is spiritual death. Spiritual death is mentioned in Ephesians 2, 1, and also in Romans 1, if you want to jot down that reference. Those who practice such things are worthy of death, Paul says. There's a spiritual death in Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in trespasses and sin. What does that mean? We were separated from God. We had no spiritual life. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death. We are dead, cut off from God. Death is the divine penalty for sin. Third kind of death, the second death. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. Revelation 20... And verse 14, John, under the inspiration of the Lord Jesus, writes in Revelation 20, verse 14, about the second death, and that there are those in this world that will experience the second death, those that have not trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Revelation 20, 14, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. We are born once, we die twice. We're born twice, we die once. If you're just born physically and have never been born again, you will die twice. There will be a physical death and then there will be the second death, eternal damnation in a place called hell. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, born physically and then born spiritually, you and I will never taste the second death the sting of death is gone now let's talk about the reality of the fear of death first of all there's an instinctive fear we know it's coming I mean one of the reasons why men don't like to go to doctors is because they're afraid to get bad news I guess women are that way too I'm just speaking for the only particular thing I know about but what we know it we know it's coming now Part of the reason there's an instinctive fear is there's a fear of pain, and yet because of what happens in medical science now, and there's so many drugs to drug people up, very few people die in actual pain because they're so medicated and drugged up, especially if there's a long-term illness. There's a fear of pain, there's the fear of separation from those we love, it's that saying goodbye. It's knowing that we need to say goodbye. It's knowing that it's time to say goodbye. It's knowing that, that we're going to be separated from them and from what we know and from the people that we love. And so there's an instinctive fear. Now, how many of you have got a life insurance policy? You know what that is, don't you? That's a death insurance policy. You know, have, have you ever had a life insurance... And know a offense against life insurance salesman. okay? Have you ever had a life insurance salesman say, in the event that something happens to you? What do you mean, in the event? You know something I don't know? I mean, something is... It's not if something happens to me. It's when something happens to me. And so it's not a life insurance policy. It's a death benefit policy for those I leave behind. not going to do me any good. I'm not going to get to come to the office and collect. I'm not going to get to cash the check, but I've still got it, but it's not a life insurance policy for me. It's for the lives of those that I leave behind. Now, there's an instinctive fear. There's spiritual fear. What is it? What is this death, the mystery of it? What happens at the moment we die? And we've all seen these, you know, tabloid-type TV shows, you know. I died, and I went down a tunnel, and I saw a light, and... It was Billy Bob's in Fort Worth, and I was riding the Bucking Bronco, and then I came back with a purpose in life. You know, I, I, some, some of these people, I'm not, I'm not real sure. Some of their stories sound like they did too much drugs in the 60s or something. I'm not really sure what... I'm not going to see a light. I'm going to see the Lord. If I've died, I will see the Lord. The Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present With the Lord. It doesn't say to be present with a light. If it wanted to say to be present with a light, that's what God would have said. So I believe that when somebody dies who is a believer, the first thing they see after their body loses its consciousness and after its body loses its life, I think that person wakes up in the physical presence, knowledge of Jesus Christ is there with them. I don't believe there's a holding tank. I don't believe there's a line where we take a number and wait. I don't believe we're floating around in some ethereal space in a black hole somewhere uh, waiting until we finally meditate our way into it. I think we're there. And yet there's this fear because we don't really know what it's like. But you know, for the believer, we know one who knows what it's like. He's already been there and he came back and told us we didn't have to fear it. So if he's overcome it, then we don't have to fear it. But I tell you, for the lost person, there ought to be a fear. Because the fear for the lost person is simply this. And you want to talk about a great witnessing tool. This is a great witnessing tool to use with somebody. What if we're right? What if we're right? Then the moment you die, you lost all your choices. You have no choice. You don't get to come back and do over. You don't get to come back and take the test again. What if we're right? What if there is eternal punishment? What if there is separation from God? What if there is a hell? If we're right, then are you willing to run that risk that when you wake up, you will not see Jesus, but you will be face to face with an eternity without him? And so there's a spiritual fear. Then there's an obsessive fear. Death is beyond our control, and we can get obsessed by it. And society is consumed with life and health. Do you do you realize that we read the labels in grocery stores more than we read the Bible? Let's see, that's got how much sodium has that got in it? Huh? You know, used to you just go to a grocery store and go. That looks good. That looks good. Get four of those. Get three of those, and you know, just get twelve of those. And oh, oh Twinkies! Wow, that's great. Just get some Twinkies, and and let's get some of that. You know. Real ice cream. Forget this yogurt stuff. Let's just go out. And now we just sit there and we read the label. And go. I don't think it's fat free. It looks like it's got too many carbohydrates in it. And I mean, we're obsessed. Shopping has taken on a new dimension in a grocery store. And you almost need a magnifying glass to read those things anyway. You know. And of course, it just. And of course, what I do is I look at it and it says, hmm, five fat grams. I forget to read that it says per serving. Because for me, a serving is different from just two cookies. Two cookies is not a serving, that's an appetizer. Rob Davis, who used to be on our staff, his brother Randy, one time he said he was eating a box of fat free fig Newtons a week. And he said, I, I was gaining weight, but they were fat free. You don't need a box a week. You just, oh, just come home and eat them. We get obsessed with it. We're consumed with looking young. I mean, it is a multi-billion dollar culture and business in America today with looking young, with, with tummy tucks and facelifts and, and the facial creams and everything else that we do to try to look younger than we are. Now, can I help you some, with something? Don't try to be younger than you are because everybody knows you're trying. You don't know you're trying, but listen, we know you're trying. You know, I, I, if you want to start, a, I'll tell you the quickest way to start a church fight. Grade the Sunday school by women's ages. And say, now you're going to have to go to the class at your age. Well, I'm 24. you got a son that's 29. He was born before me. We we get obsessed with this stuff. We get obsessed with with how we look. This is one of the things that happens to men in midlife crisis. They're trying to prove that they're still young. So they go out and try some other life, trying to prove to themselves they still got something. I I remember Terry's grandmother, Opal, (laughs) well, if I get off on this too long, I'm going to be stuck for a while. What did she put on? Was it Oil of Olay? She was the greasiest one woman (laughs) I have ever met in my life. I mean, you'd hug her and you'd just kind of slide (laughs) off of her. You know, you just, you couldn't get a grip on her. I mean, she just... And she lived to be about 185 years old, and... You know, you just, I mean, you just look at her, you'd leave the house and say, that woman's on her way to the funeral. She lived right across the street from the funeral home in Bremen, Georgia, and she'd smoke and drink and smoke and smoke and smoke and drink. I, was she 88 when she died? Something like that. You know, and I remember one time when our girls were little, we left the house and they said, you know, mommy, if, if mommy Opal doesn't quit smoking, it's gonna kill her. I said, well, she's got so much oil and oil on her, she'll just slide right by wherever she's going. Now, this is honest truth. She had surgery. This is a true story. She had surgery, and the day after, and this is back in the 60s when, you know, you stayed in the hospital 10 days to get over a surgery. She crawled out of her hospital bed, got to the door, and ripped her name and her age off the door so that people wouldn't know how old she was. She made us swear that we would not put her birth date and her death date on her tombstone so that when people would come by and look at her grave, they wouldn't figure out how old she was. But she was obsessed with it. She, she, I remember her saying, if you let them, because in Bremen still, see, they still read the names of the deceased and how old they were and their relatives. It's a little small town. I remember her distinctly saying, if you let them read my name over the radio, I'm coming back to get you. She was serious about it. She was obsessed with it. And it puts us in bondage. Now, let's look at the second thing. Before I'm going to leave Opal at peace. I preached her funeral, and I'm going to leave her at peace. She, She was a sweet lady. She's just a little strange. We've cast that demon out of our family, so we just... I need somebody to help me overcome the power of the devil. Verse nine. But we do see Him who has made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For both he, who this is verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, are all from one Father, for which he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Let's just summarize this very quickly. Verses 5 through 9, Jesus came to recapture our lost inheritance. We were children of God until Adam and Eve ate us out of house and home. And now... Jesus comes back to reclaim our lost inheritance. Everything that God intended for his people when he created man, Jesus said, I've come to give that back to you. That kind of relationship with me, I want to restore that with you. He tasted death so I wouldn't have to. Number two, verses 10 through 13, Jesus came to recover our lost relationship. Our lost relationship. He fulfilled the purpose of providing salvation. It says that he was the author of their salvation through suffering. And in verse 11, he talks about one father. Now, here's what that means. That means that God, through Jesus Christ, revealed himself as father to his children. It's a family name. The only people that can call God father are people who are his children. And he's given us this family name revealed to family members. And in verse 12, he says, I will proclaim thy name. What name? Father. Not God far off in a distance that I cannot approach with my fears. Not a God that I I can't talk to or relate to, but a father. Everything that is good about that word. I'm not talking about how that can be abused and, and you could have been in a bad situation. I'm talking about everything good and perfect about the role of Father. That is what God is to us. So when we have fears, this one who has tasted death for us, we can go to our Father and say, Father, these are the things I'm afraid of. These are the things that scare me. These are the things that frighten me. And I love this line. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters in Christ. When God the Father and God the Son are talking, He calls us brothers, not servants, not slaves, not second-class citizens. God says, I am privileged to call them brothers. Jesus, now here's what you need to know. Jesus became like us so we could become like Him. Jesus became like us, flesh and blood, so you and I could become like Him. What was He? He was the Son of God. He saved us, He redeemed us, not just so that we could be Christians, but so that we could be called children of the King. So in verse 12 and 13, He quotes three Old Testament passages. Psalms 22, verse 22, Isaiah 8, verses 17, and Isaiah 8, verse 18. And what He does is He calls us to join Him in praise to God. Jesus is the one leading our praise for our victory over death because he is victorious over death. He's the one that's leading the band. He's the one that's leading the parade. He's the one that's taking us into the presence of God where we can praise God for the salvation that we've been provided. Number three, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came to release us from the power of the devil. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, now that means that Jesus shared in flesh and blood, means he was all man, not just took on the appearance, not just was a form of, he was all man, he was flesh and blood. And we are flesh and blood. Jesus became one of us, all God, all man. Since he took on and we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil. What he's saying there is that his death gives us hope that we can overcome the penalty of sin and death. Verse 15. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now here's something you need to understand. This passage does not say that the devil has been eliminated. Nobody here surely believes that the devil's been eliminated. If he's not bugging you, I'll, I'll let him go bug you bug you for a while because he's been bugging me enough. But he says he's been rendered powerless. Now, if you can write down in your margin somewhere what that word means, it means to be rendered impotent. To be rendered impotent or to nullify or to make inoperative. He no longer has the power to operate in the realm of death. There are areas where God has rendered him in this season powerless. He is immobilized. He is inconsequential. He is nullified, powerless, impotent. That's what God's done to Jesus. He's rendered him that way. And, and Satan, what it means is Satan's not in control of death. Now, that's the weapon and the whip that he wants to use against us, but he's not in control of it. First Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How is God able to do that? Because Jesus Christ is victorious over death and hell and the grave. The power comes because Jesus Christ rendered Satan powerless in our lives. And in 2 uh, Corinthians five twenty-one, God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Revelation 1, 17, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. 1 Corinthians 15 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the key Jesus took your sins so you could take his righteousness. Jesus took your sin so you could take his righteousness. That renders the devil powerless because now you're no longer operating under the dominion of sin. You're operating under the control of Christ. And he gives you his righteousness and his victory. Now the devil tries to convince us that's not the case. He, he still wants to use death as his intimidation tool. But Jesus defeated death. The power of death, the grip of death, the fearsomeness of death has been overcome by Jesus. And the cross... Of Christ changes all this for those who believe so I look at death differently as a believer than a non-believer looks at death because Christ has rendered Satan powerless and when Satan creeps up and says you know there's a lot for you to be afraid of all I've got to say is not Satan do I need to go back and remind you what Jesus did to you at the cross he rendered you powerless And if you're trying to put fear in my life, the Word of God says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 365 times in the Scripture it says fear not. So whatever you're trying to get me uptight about and afraid about, I'm just going to tell you 365 times. I can repeat it all if you want to, or you can just leave me alone now. I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to live in bondage. His death confronted my fears and overcame them. Number four, verses 16 through 18. Jesus came so that I might have help in time of need, whatever that need is, whatever that need is. Verse 15. Now, verse 15, this word, deliver, is an interesting word. It can actually be translated to break a contract or to divorce. To break a contract or to divorce to nullify Satan's power over us has been broken his contract that he got has been nullified broken now notice how he describes Jesus a merciful and faithful high priest mercy is more than an emotion mercy is what God did for us that we didn't deserve God should have judged us. God should have said, you've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. I condemn you all to hell. And he would have been just in doing that. None of us could have been in hell and said, God, you didn't have a right to do that to me. I was a good person. Knowing the righteousness of God and the holiness of God, he would have been right to condemn us and leave us with no options out. But he was merciful. How merciful was he? He left the throne... And went to a cross I don't know anybody that can show us any more mercy than that but not only merciful but he is a faithful high priest he stands faithfully on our behalf and ever lives to make intercession for us he stands on my behalf not only did he stand on the cross on my behalf to take on his life the sins of the world he stands now at the right hand of the Father to plead my case and to plead on my behalf so when fear grips me He says, Father, we need to help. We need to come alongside and help. And so what did he do? He sent a helper, a comforter. Isn't that amazing that the Holy Spirit's called a comforter? Why? Because the disciples were afraid. They were afraid that they might kill them just like they were about to kill Jesus. They were afraid of the consequences of standing up for Christ. They were afraid of what the future would hold if Jesus was gone. And so what did he do? He sent a comforter alongside. And so the comforter (coughs) alongside us and the Son by the side of the Father give us an assurance we don't have to be afraid. So let's talk about two things we need to do. First of all, I need to believe what God says, not what I feel. I need to believe what God says, not what I feel. I'd ask you to write this quote in the front of your Bible somewhere. It's a great little quote by A.W. Tozer, who was a great man of God. This is one of those little statements that you can look at and remind yourself of from time to time. It's not scripture, but it reminds you of scriptural truth. Tozer said, fear is of the flesh and panic is of the devil. Fear is of the flesh and panic is of the devil. Our culture feeds on fear. That's the flesh. Panic is of the devil. When I get panicked, it's because I'm not looking to the Lord. I'm looking at my circumstances or I'm looking at my future. I'm looking at something I can't control. And it's got me in bondage. Now, verse 18, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus was tempted. That word is a first aorist passive participle. say, well, how was Jesus tempted? I'll tell you how he was tempted. He was tempted to say, forget about them. I'm not going to the cross. Whatever temptation you and I face, There is no temptation quite like the one Jesus faced when facing the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. The temptation was to leave us dead in our trespasses and sin and to go back and never have to suffer the sting of death. And his temptation was to walk away from God's will to walk away from the plan that was ordained before the councils of the world and to walk away from it all and say, it's not worth it. But since he overcame that, he is able to come to the aid. The word means to run at the first cry of help, to come to the aid, to run at the first cry of help. Now, those of you who are parents, you know that your ears are tuned. If your kid starts crying, you know if it's a... When, when, when cry, or if it's a real cry for help, and your ears are tuned that if it's a real cry for help that you run to it. You don't you don't sit there and say, "Honey, as soon as I get through with my coffee, uh, I need to finish reading the sports page." And you throw everything down and you run to their aid because they're your child. Jesus runs to our aid. He runs to help us in times of need to those who are tempted. They were tempted to give up. Sometimes we're tempted to give up. So I want to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love the Lord and to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, that's not an unconditional promise, folks. It says to those who love the Lord. God does not just work all things for good. He works all things for good to those who love the Lord. Okay? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. There's that word brethren again. We're the sons of God. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? All this that God's done for us. If God is for us, who is against us? If God's for us, what difference does it make who's against us? I mean, we've got God on our side. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over for us all, how would He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of God Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Just as it was written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we get by. Kind of hope we're going to make it. Is that what he says? In all these things, we overwhelmingly, supernaturally conquer and overcome. In all these things, all these things that could come against us, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. What? Because we're strong, we're tough, We're hard, we're self-made people. No, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. That's where our victory is. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul went as far as he could go up and as far as he could go down, as far as he could go from side to side, and he said, there's nothing, nothing that I can see, nothing that I can understand, and God's Word is confirmed. There is nothing you and I will ever face that can separate us from the love of God. You say, well, now what? What if I'm sick and I'm in the hospital and I lose my mind and I don't know if I'm saved? God knows if you're saved. You don't have to know it at that point. That's already been signed and sealed and delivered in the kingdoms of heaven. So well, what if I get to a point where I'm I don't feel like I'm saved? of the enemy rather than believing the word of God second thing I need to daily apply what God says I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 118 Psalm 118 I need to daily apply what God says I don't know if you've ever been where the psalmist is, but when you get there, you'll find that God's already there with you. Psalm 118. From my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? At a time when the communists took over China there was a young pastor and his wife and his small children who were being persecuted and finally they had had enough of this couple and they took them out and they had an open hole and they lined them up in front of that open hole and they said if you don't deny your relationship with Jesus Christ we will kill your children and if you don't deny your relationship with Jesus Christ we'll kill you and the children were old enough to understand with these men with guns pointed at their heads what was about to happen. And they began to cry and they began to weep and they began to shake and they began to ask their mommy and their dad, you know, mommy, what do we do? Daddy, what do we do? No, no don't let them kill us. And the mother put her hand over the mouths of the children and she said, children, be quiet. Tonight, we dine with the king." death has lost its state. Ladies and gentlemen, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Man thinks that he does his best when he destroys somebody. But for the Christian, he just opens the door to heaven and allows us to enter in. Man thinks and has always thought since Christ came, if we could kill all the Christians, the world would be a better place. The problem is, when they kill us, we go to a better place. And so the world never wins with the intimidation game of death. That's why Christianity multiplies in third world countries. That's why it multiplies under persecution because those of us who know Christ are not afraid of what we are leaving because we are more excited about where we're going. Now, Surely all of us want to live a long and healthy life and we want to live a prosperous life and we want God to bless us and if God's taking a bus tonight, we'd rather not go. But there is no fear in it because God has given us our days. He has ordained our days and numbered our days. And the reality is, is if we believe in the sovereignty of God, that all of us are invincible until God's through with us that if you are living under the lordship of Christ and if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then God will keep his hand on you and he will protect you and he will let you live and breathe until he is through with your purpose on earth and then he'll take you to glory. So why be fearful? When it's finished and it's done for us here on earth, then we just begin a life of a relationship in glory. We sing a song every now and then, whatever you need, God is. Whatever you need, God is. You may be afraid tonight of something, and it may not be anything I mentioned, but whatever that fear is, if you'll take it before Jesus, He will say to you, My brother, my sister, I've already been there, I've already dealt with that, I've already overcome it. Why don't you stand with me in my victory? Don't
1: live in defeat. Thank you for joining us for Path to Truth. If you would like to learn more about Sherwood Baptist Church here in Albany, Georgia, you can explore our website at www.sherwood-baptist.org. If you would like a copy of today's service, please send us your name and address to Path to Truth. 2201 Whispering Pines Road, Albany, Georgia, 31707. Once again, that's Path to Truth. 2201, Whispering Pines Road in Albany, Georgia, zip code 31707. If you're requesting a videotape of the service, please enclose $10 with your order. If you would like an audio tape of the pastor's message, enclose $3 with your order. Remember to include your name and complete address along with your telephone number and be sure to ask for the tape number that you see on the screen. We would enjoy hearing from you by mail or by phone. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. And we hope you'll join us next week at this time for Path to Truth from Sherwood Baptist Church.